Thinking of Establishing a Church? Thoughts to Consider by B.A. Wiseman. Let's begin with a few questions. Local congregations have never been more needed, yet churches are dying more rapidly than they are being born. If you think you have what it takes to begin a congregation, you are embarking upon a noble adventure. But consider the questions that follow. Number one, has God called you to build a church? Do you believe you are chosen for the distinctive service of Jesus Christ and a growing church? Look to Luke 6, 13, Acts 9, 15, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 through 28. Question two, do you have a willing heart for sacrifice and commitment, visionary zeal, and preserving tenacity? Look at Luke 14, verse 28 through 33. Question three, do you like and relate well with people? Question four, are you married? Do you have children? Does your extended family share your faith? Number five, are you gainfully employed in business or are you retired? Number six, were you reared in a church setting? Do you already meet with a Bible study group? Number seven, do you have a systematic theology that is precept upon precept, line upon line? And can you defend your belief from scripture? Number eight, do you have a group of people willing to help you in the work of building a church? Were any of these people reared in a church also? Number nine, is the population density in your area predominantly white? Number 10, what do you believe is your greatest asset for establishing a church? Number 11, what do you perceive is the most difficult part of growing a church? Number 12, have you ever participated in establishing a new body of Christians into a church? Realities that make building a church difficult. Number one, spiritual famine and moral decadence within the United States. Number two, cultural opposition to biblical truth. Number three, modernization and focus on materialism, hedonism, and nihilism. Number four, disdain for the mainstream church has led to a solidly anti-church sentiment for many. Some use this negativity as an excuse to never support or attend a church. Number five, people who are not raised in a church have difficulty seeing the importance of the church in their lives. They find it difficult to change. Number six, people who are not reared in a church see no need to commit to one on a regular weekly basis. Number seven, Physical and material security reduce the need for the solace, comfort, and fellowship that people once looked for in their local church. Number eight, many find the threat of ostracism and even persecution for socially unacceptable beliefs not something that they can endure. Number nine, growing numbers of men don't want to be under the authority of a pastor. Number ten, prosperity brings choice. People have financial means for more choices regarding where and how they spend their time. Number 11. The world of technology, communication, and geographical mobility bring people into contact with more people, exposing them to more and different worldviews. 
Number 12. People who do believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible, and many other good things do not always believe that there is a necessity to belong to a church or have any personal accountability. Number 13. The internet provides avenues for self-entertainment and strong competition for spiritual, social, and political outreach. Hardly is there ever any time left for corporate worship in church attendance. Number 14. As church leaders try to build a unified body, the pastor must work through the various theological positions and heretical ideas that people bring with them. The plethora of Bible translations alone necessitates choosing a Bible of record for the church. If you speak English, I believe without a doubt that your best choice is the King James Version. Number 16. People that have once been part of a church and sustained a bad experience are often reluctant to return to any church. They simply enjoy the freedom of not going. Number 17. People with bad habits and tolerant to an immoral lifestyle are not easy converts. We stand at the precipice of a monumental time in Western Christian civilization. There has never been a greater need for the local church. We all need to be encouraged by this unalterable fact. There's never been a time when there was no church. The living church of Jesus Christ has an unbroken continuity. In Scripture, there is an unbroken continuity of the church from Moses to the end of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, common terms refer to this church were the congregation of Israel, or the assembly. Congregation is translated from a Hebrew root that essentially means assembly, and is found in the book of Exodus nearly 50 times. The Hebrew root for assembly, essentially the same as congregation, was commonly used to describe Israel when she met as a collective body. Acts 7 verse 38 refers to Stephen addressing the church in the wilderness. Before and during the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, synagogue, meaning the place of assembly, was the term Israel used. In Matthew 16 verse 18, Jesus Christ first used the term ecclesia, ecclesia, the English word church is perfectly good for describing the body that gathers in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the Gospels introduce Jesus Christ in his conception, birth, ministry of miracles, his sinless life under the law, and his sacrificial crucifixion, powerful resurrection, and bodily ascension into heaven. Beginning with the Acts of the Apostles, the early history of the New Testament records the first 32 years of the New Testament church's history. The narrative of both the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles connects the history of the church to the Old Testament canon. The Apostle Peter preached the first sermon following Jesus' ascension. In his famous sermon at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts 2 verses 14-39, the Apostle Peter referred to teaching from the prophet Joel and the writings of David to flesh out his introduction and connection of Jesus Christ to the promises of the Old Covenant. In his second sermon, in Acts 3, verse 12-26, through 26, 
Peter continues to build on the theme of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. He connected all that occurred with the patriarchs of the Old Covenant, Moses, and all the prophets from Samuel forward. In his third sermon, in Acts 4, verse 8-12, through 12, Peter drew from the psalmist David, from Psalm 118, verse 22, and connected Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection from the dead with prophetic utterances from the Old Covenant. In their personal testimony before the Sanhedrin, in Acts 5, the apostles Peter, John, and perhaps even others, again connected Jesus Christ, whom they had crucified and who miraculously rose from the dead with the Old Testament, calling Israel to repentance and forgiveness of sins. At the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7, this brave man preached his final farewell sermon and began with Abraham and the patriarchs. The early history of Israel, the life and mission of Moses and the prophets, all the way to Jesus Christ. He laid at their feet the charge of betraying and murdering Jesus. Philip preached a sermon to the eunuch of great authority under Queen Candace of Ethiopia in Acts 8 verse 32 and 37. He connected the prophecy of Isaiah 53 to the humiliation, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ and pointed to him as being the source of Peter's salvation. The entire life of Jesus Christ is welded to the Old Testament. His New Testament church is inseparable from the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms of the Old Testament. In Acts 10, the Holy Spirit uses the apostolic keys to open the door of salvation to the Greek-speaking Israelites, then scattered throughout Judea and across the Greek-speaking Hellenistic world. Cornelius, a Roman centurion and commander of an Italian band of about 100 soldiers, became the first Greek-speaking Israelite convert in the New Testament. This marked a watershed moment in the development of the New Testament church. The long-standing breach between Judah and the Greek-speaking Gentiles had at long last found a solution in the redemption of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. The Apostle Peter preached to the household of Cornelius in Acts 10, verse 34-47, together with his kinsmen and near friends. Peter's sermon to this assembly is historic in every way, for he incorporated the testimony of the prophets in building his case for Jesus Christ as the Messiah that was to come. He preached that by Christ's crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, both Judeans and the Greek-speaking Israelites, which are called Gentiles in the Bible, could attain deliverance from sin through salvation. At the conclusion of this sermon, the first body of believing Judeans and Greek-speaking Israelites were joined as one body in Christ. All of these monumental and historical developments in the early history of the church occurred following the day of Pentecost celebrated 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead in A.D. 33. Peter's first sermon to the Greek-speaking Gentiles occurred about A.D. 41, which was approximately nine years after the day of Pentecost. During these historic years was another historic turning point in the history of Christianity and the New Testament, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as the Apostle Paul. 
From the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 to the conversion of Cornelius, the Apostle Peter, John, and James were the leading voices in apostolic Christianity. Up to the conversion of Cornelius, about A.D. 41, and thereafter for a short time, Jerusalem was also the center of Christianity. The great temple was located there. This was the focus of the nation of Judea. Sometime after the conversion of St. Paul and Cornelius, the geographical focus for the early Christians became Antioch. The apostles Barnabas and St. Paul became evangelists to the Greek-speaking Israelites, while the apostles Peter, John, James, and others continued to evangelize out of Jerusalem and throughout Judea and beyond. During all these years, the church suffered tremendous persecution, beginning with the beheading of John the Baptist, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the martyrdom of Stephen, and the beheading of James the Apostle. The persecution against the early church continued to worsen. Understand that the New Covenant Church was beginning to grow, but not without terrible opposition and persecution. It wasn't a rosy time in which to live. Essentially, Christianity was an underground operation at that time. Paul preached the first recorded sermon, which Luke preserves for us in Acts 13, verse 16-41. In this great apostolic discourse, St. Paul lays out the biblical case for the Old Testament that Jesus Christ's sinless sacrifice under the law and his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension were fulfillments of the messianic promise made unto the fathers. His return in glory and judgment will usher in the consummation of the promises set forth in the law, the prophets, and the psalms. The Gospels, Epistles, and Book of Revelation chronicle the completion of those promises made to the fathers with the return of Jesus Christ in glory and judgment. Other promises include the resurrection of the dead, regathering of Israel, and restoration of the kingdom with Jesus Christ on the throne of David. In the 32-year history summarized in the Acts of the Apostles, there were several dozen churches established between A.D. 33 and 65. More followed, some of which included Jerusalem, then Antioch, which were the first two churches, and a plethora of others over the next three decades. Alexandria, Athens, Berea, Caesarea, Colossae, Corinth, Crete, Cyprus, Derby, Heropolis, Iconium, Joppa, Lydia, Lystra, Pella, Philippi, Ptolemaeus, Thessalonians, Pudioli, and the seven churches of Asia identified in the book of Revelations, which are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodiceans, and others. The longevity of any church will be based on several factors, but especially the degree of faithfulness to the Word of God. I herewith suggest that anyone wishing to establish a new church study thoroughly the recorded sermons found in the Acts of the Apostles. Let the truths found therein be your guiding principles for starting a new church. I humbly suggest that Peter's sermon in Acts 2 be one of your guiding landmark sermons in launching a local church. Also, carefully note 
what the early Christians were doing in the formative days of the New Testament church. And they, Hebraic Judean Israelites, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers. The role of the apostles in the foundations of the New Testament church is tremendously important. In Ephesians 2 verse 20, it declares that the primitive Christian and apostolic church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Think about this. The church rests on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. You see, the New Testament canon is the combined writings and revelations of the apostles Peter, Paul, John, James, Jude, Matthew, and their close associates, including Luke and Mark. The epistles of the New Testament are the primary guidelines for starting a new church body. A final warning that anyone contemplating building a church should consider is this. Given the cultural crisis that engulfs us, it will not be easy to hold to the truth of the exclusivity of Israel. Without this firm premise, you will end up with a multiracial congregation and defeat one of the most desired objectives of building a new congregation. We at the Church of Israel hold this line on the exclusivity of Israel in the church with this caveat. Attendance is by invitation only. The Church of Israel is exclusively for Israel. The name of the church presupposes the ethnic composition of this collective church body.